Hi, I'm Ken Sandberg. And I'm Heather Michelle Lawler. Welcome to Campfire Classics, where we try to read those books that look really good on your shelf. I'm in a New York state of mind. <laughs> We're back! So yes, the rumors are true. We have returned to New York City. We have indeed, and we are in a 14-day quarantine in our apartment. Woo! So we're on day two, and this is already how kooky we are. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so we had almost three weeks in San Diego and breathing in the sea air and surviving uh, the week-long election that was never-ending. <laughs> <laughs> but it, like all things, did in fact end. Whether you believe it or not, uh, <laughs> whether you've acknowledged it or not, but uh, we're happy that it's uh, come out the way it has. Let's yep. just say that. It's, um, it's all done, and I am excited to get back to news reports that aren't um, updates on Twitter. Yeah, That'll last night fun. we watched a really good, interesting uh, CNN story Uh about like venom and snakes and using it to like cure heart disease yeah. and stuff. I was like, oh my gosh, this is what the news used to be. Oh, I feel so good. <laughs> but yeah, getting back to that would be nice. And uh, yeah, we're, uh, we're, we're laying here. Well, we're sitting here. Lina is laying underneath the microphone. So we hear purring. She's just, she's decided to join us for, uh, for our recording session. <laughs> Yeah, that was her. That was her. That's her purring and wheezing because she's, she's a monkey. Um, yeah, so we had that, and now we're back in the city and trying to decide what's next. Yeah. So who knows where we'll come come at you in the next couple of weeks. So um, as you know, because you are clearly a hugely dedicated fan of this podcast and have been listening for the last couple of weeks... Uh, for the month of November, we are focusing on mustaches because it is Movember or Mustache November. This month, I have been growing out my mustache in an attempt to uh, help raise awareness and money for research into um, cancer and mental health issues. Uh, the mustache is finally starting to look like a mustache, yeah. not like some horrifying mold, grotesque growth <laughs> thing under my nose. I don't think so it ever looked like that. But... That's an improvement. <laughs> um, it more looked like a like because he like went he like shaved. So like you never you rarely shave shave, like you do like the the uh, electronic. Mm -hmm. But he went in and like. I got him for his birthday some, like, nice shaving stuff. So he went in and did, like, the, like, to-the-face to the shave. Clean, clean. And so for about a week and a half, the mustache was looking like a, uh, like, 16-year-old high school boy trying to grow facial hair for the first time. Yeah. <laughs> so it was like a, it almost looked like a shadow. But now it definitely is looking like a mustache. Yeah. So we will I, post pictures. I no longer Bye, Lina. I no longer look like a teenager. Now I look like someone who hangs out outside schools in a van. Oh, not, not quite. No, not not it's quite not that there bad. yet. No, no. <laughs> also no one hangs outside schools in vans anymore because we can't you know, people are learning at home. 
<laughs> Victory. Victory. Um, yeah, so check it. Who would have known that the greatest weapon we have against schoolyard creepers Predators. is a global pandemic? Yeah, well, uh, uh yeah. <laughs> um, but also for Movember, not only am I growing growing out my own mustache, but we are celebrating the great Hercule Poirot and his fabulous crime-solving mustache. Crime-solving mustaches! <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I don't have a lot to report. I mean... Uh, it's been a weird couple weeks, and uh, it seems like we are headed into uh, a second lockdown. So uh, listen to podcasts that make you giggle and take your mind off the chaos of the world. So we're going to try and make you laugh today and read you some uh, some fun mysteries about mustaches and whatnot. Do you want to know what you're reading? I do want to know what I'm reading, right yeah. jump right into it today? You are reading... The Million Dollar Bond Robbery. Ooh. So I picked this one because we are picking all Her Hercule Poirot, and we all know I can't say that word uh, if you listened last week. Um, I picked that one because we've been watching the Oceans movies. In the past like week, we've watched all, all of, of them. them. So we've watched 11, 12, 13, and 8. So uh, we've been very much in bank heist mode, and I was like, ooh, million dollar bond robbery. That, that sounds, sounds right. That sounds like right up our alley right now. So, um, and with our fun facts for this one, I'm going to give you the publishing date and like all that, and then I'm going to tell you some fun facts about something else. So... The Million Dollar Bond Robbery was originally published in April 1924. That's a lie. The Million Dollar Bond Robbery was originally published in The Sketch in May 1923 um, in the UK. And then it was published in the US for the first time in April 1924 uh, in Blue Book Magazine. And then was uh, eventually put into this collection of the Poirot mysteries. Poirot investigates. So, uh, yes, yeah, so 1923. And what I'm going to talk about this time for fun facts, as we've done Poirot facts, mustache facts, I'm going to talk about Agatha Christie's disappearance. <laughs> so if anybody uh, knows anything about Miss Agatha Christie or has listened to the past couple weeks, we've hinted at this. Um, this woman, who is like the most prolific mystery writer of all time, has her own mystery about her. She disappeared for um, a period of time in 1926, and to this day, no one knows exactly what happened. So I'm going to tell you a little story. So uh, her father died when she was 11, um, sadly, and uh, she said that's when her childhood ended. And then her mother passed away in April of 1926. So she, this sent her into a depression, and she ended up going on a retreat for a overwork breakdown um in like this little town in europe um uh, i'm gonna tell you where it is it's uh france <laughs> this little town called france no it's a it's a little town you can probably read it better than me because you speak french biritz it looks yeah it looks like biritz to me Beritz, and it's this beautiful, like, oceanside town. Looks like where you would go, you know, if you're having a tough time, a.k.a. San Diego. Uh, <laughs> the ocean has healing properties, y'all. So she did this, and then when she got back from this retreat, 
her husband announces that he's having an affair and has fallen in love with Nancy Neal. And so in August 1926, she's just come back from this breakdown retreat and her mother's passed away. And now her husband um, has told her that he's in love with someone else and he wants a divorce. So, yeah, wolf. So um, three months later... On December 3rd, 1926, um, they uh, they have a fight, and her husband, Archie, um, has announced and told her that he's going to go on a, we- a weekend away with friends, and she's not invited. So, that evening was when she was last seen. So, she disappears. Um, the following morning, her car was discovered in Newlands Corner, um, and... There was, her driver's license was inside, and so were her clothes. So everyone was like, uh, either there's a naked woman wandering around, or, like, she's been abducted, or hey, that was like, that was going to be my question, is <laughs> when you say her clothes, do you mean, like, she left a suitcase of clothes, or, like... It just says there were clothes inside. So I will say, when they find her, she does not have luggage. So, so, yeah. <laughs> um... So this became a huge story immediately because this, like, this story we're going to read today was written before this happened. So, like, she was already very famous at this point. And one of her books, uh, the uh, uh, Robert... The Murder of Roger Ackroyd? That one. That was, like, the bestseller in the world at this moment, like, while this was all going on. So, like, she's very successful, but clearly, like, life has happened. Um, so people, it, it went like viral. This was like the original viral story. Um, <laughs> so the, uh, detectives that were working on it, um, offered a hundred pound reward for any information, which is roughly $6,000 now. Um, decent chunk of change. Yeah. There were more than a thousand police officers, 15,000 volunteers and airplanes searched the area. <laughs> Like, for Agatha Christie. So, here we go. So, um, the detectives also brought on two famous crime writers. We had Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, of course, um, who wrote, who created Sherlock Holmes, of course, and Dorothy L. Sayers, who is the author of Lord Peter Whimsey's, the Lord Peter Whimsey series. So, they were brought in because they write mystery novels. So, this is a mystery, and they're like, maybe they can help. Now, of course, uh, Doyle, being the occultist that he is, um, used, tried to use his paranormal powers to solve the mystery, as you do. And he took one of Christie's gloves from that was found in the car and took it to a celebrated medium. So he was trying to do exactly what the character in The Leather Funnel tried to do. Absolutely. <laughs> hey! So maybe that's what he was writing about. So he took this glove <laughs> to... Um, to his a friend of a friend of him who's a medium and like tried to get him to uh, provide answers and it just says it did not. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, by the second week the by the second week of the search this had spread around the entire world and the New York Times did like a huge spread on it so like the New York Times was like in yeah. so it was not until so she disappeared on the third it was not until December fourteenth. That was exact. That was full eleven days since her disappearance. That she was found. She was found safe and healthy and fine at the, a hotel in Harrogate, England. Um, she was unable to provide any clues to what happened. She remembers nothing. She claims, um, and they have made lots of 
speculation, but um, they've, they've assumed she left home tra traveling to London, crashed her car, and then she had to have boarded a train to Harrogate. And then she arrived in this spa town um, and checked into the Swan Hydro. Now, no, now it's the old Swan, but there was no luggage. And she used the assumed name Teresa Neal, which was her husband's mistress's name. Huh. So she checked into the hotel, like she doesn't even remember, but she checked in using the name of her husband's new lover. Um, this this hotel where she checked in was like the height of elegance in the 20s. Um, and she did nothing suspicious while she was there. And people, she said she was from South Africa. Um, and she joined in at the dances that they had every night and the balls and like, I don't know where she got all these clothes. I'm guessing she bought them when she got there because she didn't bring any luggage. Didn't bring so, any luggage. Or, you know, whatever. Um, but she... Maybe she, <laughs> uh, stole them from one of the other guests. Maybe. Or asked to borrow them. Who knows? Um, and she even like was singing in the, uh, entertainment room some nights, like to get up and sing with the piano player. So she went, she went and did, she went and did karaoke and hit the, the <laughs> and dance hit the parties. And, and hit the club, yeah. you know, as you do. So event, the reason they found her. This sounds like it was a very typical, like, like breakup, breakup story. crisis. Oh yeah. Like girls, you cut your hair, like assume a new identity, AKA put on like an outfit you probably wouldn't normally wear and like hit the clubs and you know get a little drunk and forget everything <laughs> well and it's not just ladies like guys oh, yeah. you grow you grow the breakup beard yeah. and and then you start you know going out to bars and and <laughs> being extra social and extra like happy in order to cover yeah. the pain hopefully forget everything yeah. that's going on which she did um so she was eventually found only because the hotel banjo player, Bob Tappan, alerted the police because he recognized her huh. from the news, like from the newspaper stories that were going around. They were pr they were printing her picture and showing like her last known what she was wearing and stuff. So the banjo player. <laughs> Man, who would have guessed that a banjo player could do something right? Oh, damn. Do you have something against banjo players? Because I love me some banjo. <laughs> no, I don't. I just thought it would be a funny joke. Aww. <laughs> um, so they they show up. Her husband comes to collect her. And she was in no hurry and was like, I have to go to the ball tonight. And goes upstairs and puts on her evening gown and, like, gets ready to go out. And then the police are like, no, we've got... It's time to go now. She has never spoken and never did. She's passed away now. She never spoke about the missing 11 days in her life. Um, so there's a lot of um, talk about where she was. There's a lot of theories. There's a lot of movies out there and whatnot about what happened. I mean, there's a Doctor Who episode about it. Um, there's a new series we found, it's not actually a new series, but we found this series on Showtime called Urban Miss and episode, uh, season two, episode six is all spec. It's like a 28 minute speculation of what happened. But the famous thing they, that they say happened to her is she was in a fugue state. So a fugue state, and this is from Wikipedia, is disassociative fugue, formerly fugue state. Um, is a dissociative disorder 
and it's a rare psychiatric disorder characterized by reversing by uh, reversible amnesia for personal identity, including memories, personality, and other identifying characteristics. The state can last days, months, or longer. Dissociative fugue usually involves unplanned travel or wandering and is sometimes accompanied by the establishment of a new identity. So people say she was in a fugue state. And like this is something that like if someone has trauma in their life, sometimes they'll go into this like dissociative dis like place. Um, so there's they're it's, thinking it's a way to it's a way to, to separate cope. to separate yourself from this this trauma or this event that you can't bring yourself to that you can't justify in your own life yeah um which kind of works in this but like she seemed to be like she no one no one knows and this is how this is how they used to this is what they used to describe like to try and justify that this woman disappeared for 11 days um and uh yeah I, she made a full recovery when she came home like she ended up Eventually, it was like a few years later, she ended up divorcing her husband because um, that took time back in the day. Um, but she continued to write. Uh, she divorced him in 1928, so two years later. Two years. Um, she ended up getting married again and continued to write and, like, never discussed it. In her autobiography, she did not write about it. Um, she never spoke about it. And uh, this Agatha Christie fan page I got a lot of this information from um, or say... Agatha Christie left a mystery with the world that even Hercule Poirot would have been able to solve. So, with that, that is the mysterious disappearance of Agatha Christie. Of course, the most important question is, after her fugue state, did she still remember how to surf? I hope so. <laughs> I, mean, I hope so. I hope that didn't get taken away from her. Because, what a badass. Though I think Archie was the one she used to surf with, not her new husband. So... Maybe that was something she kind of left behind with that relationship. Yeah. Um, or she got even better and got better than Archie and was like, fuck you, motherfucker. <laughs> um, but yeah, I highly recommend that Urban Miss episode if you have Showtime or um, can find it somewhere. It was very fun. Like, it was a delight. It seems like a delightful series. We also watched one about Freddie Mercury and Princess Diana, which I had no idea they were friends. Holy crap, y'all. And then we watched a Johnny, a Johnny Cash, Cash one about how he was... trashed a hotel and, like, the, the manager basically, like, saved his, like, he, career. Well, he trashed a hotel because he was having an argument with an imaginary ostrich. That, yeah, yeah, because he killed the ostrich's wife. Or, I don't know. It's bonkers. Y'all, I'm just it's saying this bonkers. series is pretty cool. It's a British series, and it's, like taking these urban, these very famous, like, myths about famous people and trying to fill in the holes based on, like, a picture or, like, a disappearance and whatnot. So, yeah. So, uh, that, that's all we got. So, uh, I mean, I'd love to answer more questions, but nobody has any answers <laughs> to the questions. Um, not even Doctor Who. So. <laughs> all right. Uh, should we start this thing? Let's start the fire. All right, let's get this fire going. The Million Dollar Bond Robbery by Dame Agatha Christie. That's right, she's a dame. We haven't been saying that, so... I'm sorry, because the credit, men... Credit where credit's due, Dame Christie. The sirs I don't give a shit about, but that woman, she earned her dame. <laughs> what a number of Bond robberies there have been lately, I observed one morning, laying aside the newspaper. Poor old... 
Let us forsake the science of detection and take to crime instead. You are on the, uh, how do you say it? Get rich quick track, eh, mon ami? <laughs> Yay, it's so nice to hear Poirot <laughs> with an like, accent that is not what the fuck I was doing last week. <laughs> well, look at this last coup. A million dollars worth of Liberty Bonds, which the London and Scottish Bank were sending to New York, and which disappeared in such a remarkable manner on board the Olympia. If it were not for the mal de mer and the difficulty of practicing the so excellent method of lever gear for a longer time than the few hours of crossing the channel, I should delight to voyage myself on one of those big liners, murmured Poirot dreamily. <laughs> yes, indeed, I said enthusiastically. Some of them must be perfect palaces. The swimming baths, the lounges, the restaurants, the palm courts. Really, it must be hard to believe that one is on the sea. <laughs> Cruise ships! <laughs> That's what they're talking about. Fancy-ass cruise ships. I love that Poirot has forgotten that he gets incredibly seasick, doesn't he? Yeah, well, I mean, no, that's that's what he's saying. He's saying if, if it weren't for my... If, if, it, if it weren't that it was so hard for me to keep it together on anything longer than, like, just going across the, the, the channel. The channel. Yeah. It's like, ooh, fancy cruise ship. <laughs> well, my dad, uh, who was worried about that when he came on the cruise ship, he did not have any issues. So, uh, Poirot... Take a chance. Go on the QE2. <laughs> Although I don't think... I don't think that the, exists the yet. Cruise, the cruise ships a hundred years That's ago... <laughs> were quite as fancy as We're, as we're a very different sort. Besides... <clears throat> uh -oh. Me, I always know when I am on the sea, said Poirot sadly. And all those bagatelles that you enumerate, they say nothing to me. But, my friend, consider for a moment the geniuses that travel, as it were, incognito. On board these floating palaces, as you so justly call them, one would meet the elite, the haute noblesse of the criminal world. The haven. <laughs> these are, these are the people on the, on the very, very top fancy deck. Are, are you saying the people who stay at the Haven on Norwegian Cruise are the, um, the elite and nobility of the criminal world? I mean, if that's... <laughs> I, um, sorry, Mom and Dad. I guess, yes. Uh, <laughs> that's where they stayed. Um, I don't think all of them, but I've heard some weird stories up there, man. <laughs> I guess if they wanted to blend in, they'd hang out in, like, the, like, the regular cabins and wear their flip-flops and their t-shirts and, you know, no no shame or shade. But I guess if they really want to blend in, they they would not stay in the fancy places. No, they'd put on their flip-flops and their Tommy Bahamas and they'd go sit on the pool deck. The, the yeah. The, like, the, and they'd enter, like, the sexy arms contest <laughs> <laughs> while they were very drunk. Oh, the stories I can tell. <laughs> I laughed. <laughs> so that's the way your enthusiasm runs. You would have liked to cross swords with the man who sneaked the Liberty Bonds? The landlady interrupted us. A young lady as wants to see you, Mr. Poirot. Here's a card. 
The card bore the inscription, Miss Esme Farquhar. Oh my God, what a name. And Poirot, after diving under the table to retrieve a stray crumb, nodded to the landlady to admit her. Oh, he didn't want it to be messy for the lady. He didn't want it to be messy for the lady. (laughs) He's such a classy gent. In another minute, one of the most charming girls I have ever seen was ushered into the room. She's got red hair. (laughs) If Hastings describes her as like one of the sex... He's saying charming. 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 That's a very nice word for hot. (laughs) She was perhaps about five and twenty, with big brown eyes and a perfect figure. She was well-dressed and perfectly composed in manner. So she's a criminal. (laughs) Probably, yeah. Sit down, I beg of you, mademoiselle. This is my friend, Captain Hastings, who aids me in my little problems. I am afraid it is a big problem. I have brought you today, Monsieur Poirot, said the girl, giving me a pleasant bow as she seated herself. I dare say you have read about it in the papers. I am referring to the theft of liberty bonds on the Olympia. Some astonishment must have shown itself on Poirot's face, for she continued quickly. You are doubtless asking yourself what I have to do with a grave situation like the London and Scottish Bank. In one sense, nothing. In another sense, everything. You see, Monsieur Poirot, I am engaged to Mr. Philip Ridgway. Aha. And uh, Mr. Philip Ridgway was in charge of the bonds when they were stolen. Of course, no actual blame can attach to him. It was not his fault in any way. Nevertheless, he is half distraught over the matter, and his uncle, I know, insists that he must have carelessly mentioned having them in his possession. It is a terrible setback in his career. Who is his uncle? Uh, Mr. Vavassoir, Joint General Manager of the London and Scottish Bank. Suppose, Miss Farquhar, that you recount to me the old story. Dun, dun, dun! Light the fire. (laughs) (laughs) Suppose, Miss Farquhar, you light a small fire here and uh, tell me the old story. Tell me the campfire story, yes. The the classic. Very well. As you know... What if she was like, no, fuck off? (laughs) No, just figure it out. Figure... uh, Aren't you the smart one here? (laughs) Very well. As you know, the bank wished to extend their credits in America, and for this purpose decided to send over a million dollars in Liberty Bonds. Mr. Vavassoir selected his nephew who had occupied a position of trust in the bank for many years and was conversant with all the details of the bank's dealings in New York to make the trip. The Olympia sailed from Liverpool on the 23rd, and the bonds were handed over to Philip on the morning of that day by Mr. Vavassoir and Mr. Shaw, the two joint general managers of the London and Scottish. They were counted, enclosed in a package, and sealed in his presence, and he then locked the package at once in his portmanteau. A portmanteau with an ordinary lock? Uh, No, 
Mr. Shaw insisted on a special lock being fitted to it by Messrs. Hobbs. Philip, as I say, placed the package at the bottom of the trunk. It was stolen just a few hours before reaching New York. A rigorous search of the whole ship was made, but without result. The bonds seemed literally to vanish into thin air. Poirot made a grimace. <laughs> but they did not vanish absolutely, since I gather that they were sold in small pieces within half an hour of the docking of the Olympia. Well, undoubtedly, the next thing is for me to see Mr. Ridgway. I was about to suggest that you should lunch with me at the Cheshire Cheese. Oh, the Cheshire Cheese. <laughs> it's an Alice in Wonderland themed uh, tea, tea room, like Alice's Teacup in New York. It's, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's instead of the Mad Hatter's Tea Party, it's the Mad Hatter's Cheese Fondue. It's the Cheese Fondue. Oh. Which is infinitely messier and much more dangerous. <laughs> it's like... You might get second degree cheese burns because there's people, f and it's also a cat cafe. <laughs> there's, oh, wow. There's, there's cats wandering around because it's a Cheshire Cats yep. tea room, and uh, there's fondue cheese being flung, flung about carelessly. This sounds like a really dangerous, delicious lunch. It sounds fun. <laughs> Come with me, Poirot. I was about to suggest that you should lunch with me at the Cheshire Cheese. Philip will be there. He is meeting me, but does not yet know that I have been consulting you on his behalf. Oh, yeah. Men who are distraught love when they have surprises from detectives. <laughs> Philip Ridgway was a pleasant-faced man of 30-odd, with just a touch of graying at his temples. His face looked drawn and haggard. The theft of the bonds which had been placed in his charge had almost demoralized him, and he reproached himself vainly for not having exercised greater care. Over the excellent steak and kidney pudding of the establishment, he confirmed his fiancée's story in every particular. Poirot then proceeded to question him. What led you to discover that the bonds had been stolen, Mr. Ridgway? The man laughed rather bitterly. The thing stared me in the face, Monsieur Poirot. I couldn't have missed it. My cabin trunk was half out from under the bunk, and all scratched and cut about where they'd tried to force the lock. But I understand that it had been opened with a key. That's so. They tried to force it, but couldn't, and in the end, they got it unlocked somehow. Curious, said Poirot, his eyes beginning to flicker with the green light that I knew so well. <laughs> Very curious. They waste much time trying to prize it open, and then, sapristi, they find they have the key all the time. For each of Messrs. Hobbs locks is unique. So, two different people. I'm guessing it was two different people that tried, one tried to break in. And couldn't. Couldn't. And then Left, and then someone else came in and unlocked yeah, it. Yeah, that's my prediction, is that there were two people after them. They couldn't have had the key. It never left me day or night. You are sure of that? I can swear to it. And besides, 
If they had had the key or a duplicate, why should they waste time trying to force an obviously unforceable lock? Ah, there is exactly the question we are asking ourselves. You will see the solution, if we ever find it, will hinge on that curious fact. I beg of you not to assault me if I ask you one more question. Are you perfectly certain you did not leave the trunk unlocked? Philip Ridgway merely looked at him, and Poirot gesticulated apologetically. <laughs> ah, but these things can happen, I assure you. Very well. The bonds were stolen from the trunk. I'm just imagining that guy's look. <laughs> he's been fucking stressed out, like, ever since this happened, and then this guy that he's just met at the Cheshire Cat's cheese house, um, it's like, you sure you locked it, honey? I can just see his look of, like, flame and fury. I will murder you. I will take you out. Like, and he's well, like, but in fairness, that's Sorry. probably that probably is step one in oh, detective yeah. work because it's the same as like when you call IT and they're like, is it plugged in? Yeah. Or yeah. Did you restart it? Did you like, try turning it off and turning it back on? Yeah. Like, yeah. But at the same time, it's like, Are you fucking kidding me? Re really? Like, yeah. I just, I can't, I can't read thing. my emails. Did you try opening, opening them? Email? <laughs> <laughs> ah, but these things can happen, I assure you. Very well. The bonds were stolen from the trunk. What did the thief do with them? How did he manage to get ashore with them? Ah, cried Ridgway. That's just it. How? Word was passed to the customs authorities, and every soul that left the ship was gone over with a tooth comb. And the bonds, I gather, made a bulky package. Certainly they did. <laughs> well, I've seen a lot of the movies. Bond does have a bulky package. Bond does have a bulky package. <laughs> oh, yeah. Shaken, not stirred, baby. <laughs> Certainly they did. They could hardly have been hidden on board. And anyway... We know they weren't because they were offered for sale within half an hour of the Olympia's arrival, long before I got the cables going and the numbers sent out. One broker swears he bought some of them even before the Olympia got in. Ooh. But you can't send bundles by wireless. Seagull. Fucking seagulls. Seagulls stole. Seagulls totally stole it and like dropped them off. Seagulls came and poked your knees. <laughs> and I said, <laughs> <laughs> "Seagulls poke it by head. No fun. Seagulls, stop it now." <laughs> Once again, this is this is a mystery that is sort of a non-issue in present day because you can send bonds. You by can wireless. send bonds by wireless, but at the time they could not. So how the fuck did they get off the boat? That is the question. Not by wireless, but did any tug come alongside? Only the official ones, and that was after the alarm was given when everyone was on the lookout i was watching out myself for their being passed over to someone that way submarine my god monsieur poirot this thing will drive me mad people are beginning to say i stole them myself 
But you also were searched on landing, were you not? Asked Poirot gently. Yes. Was his wife the, or fiance? The young man stared at him in a puzzled manner. You do not catch my meaning, I see, said Poirot, smiling enigmatically. Now, I should like to make a few inquiries at the bank. Ridgway produced a card and scribbled a few words on it. Send this in, and my uncle will see you at once. Poirot thanked him, bade farewell to Miss Farquhar, and together we started out for Threadneedle Street and the head office of the London and Scottish Bank. On production of Ridgway's card, we were led through the labyrinth of counters and desks, skirting paying-in clerks and paying-out clerks, and up to a small office on the first floor where the joint general managers received us. They were two grave gentlemen who had grown gray in the service of the bank. <laughs> Mr. Vevesoir had a short white beard. Mr. Shaw was clean-shaven. I understand you are strictly a private inquiry agent, said Mr. Vevesoir. Quite so, quite so. <laughs> we have, of course, placed ourselves in the hands of Scotland Yard. Inspector McNeil has charge of the case. A very able officer, I believe. I am sure of it, said Poirot politely. You will permit a few questions on your nephew's behalf about this lock. Who ordered it from Messrs. Ubbs? I ordered it myself, said Mr. Shaw. I would not trust to any clerk in the matter. As to the keys, Mr. Ridgway had one, and the other two are held by my colleague and myself. And uh, no clerk has had access to them. Mr. Shaw turned inquiringly to Mr. Vavassoir. Vavassoir. I think I am correct in saying that they have remained in the safe where we placed them on the 23rd, said Mr. Vevesoir, and then added, My colleague was unfortunately taken ill a fortnight ago, in fact on the very day that Philip left us. He has only just recovered. A severe bronchitis is no joke to a man of my age, said Mr. Shaw ruefully. <laughs> But I am afraid Mr. Vevesoir has suffered from the hard work entailed by my absence, especially with this unexpected worry coming on top of everything. Oh, he just conveniently got sick after the shit went missing. Yada, 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 and he had a key. I'm just saying. Bronchitis, my Bronchitis, ass. my butt. <laughs> Poirot asked a few more questions. I judged that he was endeavoring to gauge the exact amount of intimacy between uncle and nephew. Mr. Vevesoir's answers were brief and punctilious. Ooh, punctilious. Oh my goodness. That's a fun word. Punctilious. Punctilious. Punctilious, adjective showing great attention to detail or correct behavior. So meticulous is, an, is the uh, synonym they give. Great. Punctilious. I want to bring that. That's a fun word a to good say. Word. I'm very punctilious. <laughs> punctilious twat. You punctilious twat bag. 
<laughs> that is the most British, like, one of the most British insults one can say, I That's, think. I, yeah, <laughs> I, like, I, it's not an insult, no. but it fe- like it feels like one in your mouth. Yeah. Like, I feel like if I were to tell someone on the street, I'm like, you're punctilious. <laughs> They'd be like, excuse me? That could, that would probably get me into a fist fight. Yeah. Especially in this neighborhood. I know. You're so punctilious. What'd you say to me? I'm gonna kick this sign. <laughs> I never even looked at another guy. <laughs> Mr. Vevasoir's answers were brief and punctilious. His nephew was a trusted official of the bank and had no debts or money difficulties that he knew of. He had been entrusted with similar missions in the past. Finally, we were politely bowed out. I am disappointed, said Poirot as we emerged into the street. <laughs> you hoped to discover more? They are such stodgy old men. <laughs> it is not their stodginess which disappoints me, mon ami. I do not expect to find in a bank manager a keen financier with an eagle glance, as your favorite works of fiction put it. No, <laughs> I am disappointed in the case. It is too easy. Oh. <laughs> easy? Yes. Do you not find it almost childishly simple? You'd know who stole the bonds. <laughs> I do. But then we must... Why? Do not confuse and fluster yourself, Hastings. We are not going to do anything at present. But... Why? What are you waiting for? For the Olympia. She is due on a return trip from New York on Tuesday. But if you know who stole the bonds, why wait? He may escape. To a South Sea island where there is no extradition? No, mon ami. You would find life very uncongenial there. As to why I wait? Eh bien... (laughs) To the intelligence of Hercule Poirot, the case is perfectly clear, but for the benefit of others not so greatly gifted by the good God, the Inspector McNeil, for instance, it would be as well to make a few inquiries to establish the facts. <laughs> Poirot. I wish I wish he had I wish he was self assured. Yeah. I wish it's a shame he, he... Does, it's a shame he doesn't have any confidence in yeah, himself. He, he just really is could have not, gone somewhere. not aware of what his gifts, his gifts are. Yeah. It would be as well to make a few inquiries to establish the facts. One must have consideration for those less gifted than oneself. <laughs> Good Lord, Poirot. Do you know, I'd give a considerable sum of money to see you make a thorough ass of yourself. <laughs> just for once. You're so confoundedly conceited. (laughs) Do not enrage yourself, Hastings. In verity, I observe that there are times when you almost detest me. Alas, I suffer the penalties of greatness. (laughs) The little man puffed out his chest and sighed so comically that I was forced to laugh. Yeah, aw, <laughs> bromance. We're the you, two best friends that, that anyone, anyone could have. have. 
Tuesday saw us speeding to Liverpool in a first-class carriage of the L and NWR. Poirot had obstinately refused to enlighten me as to his suspicions, or certainties. Mm -hmm. He contented himself with expressing surprise that I, too, was not equally au fait with the situation. I disdained to argue and entrenched my curiosity behind a rampart of pretended indifference. A rampart. Once arrived at the quay alongside which lay the big transatlantic liner, Poirot became brisk and alert. Our proceedings consisted in interviewing four successive stewards and inquiring after a friend of Poirot's who had crossed to New York on the 23rd. An elderly gentleman wearing glasses, a great invalid, oddly moved out of his cabin. The description appeared to tally with one Mr. Ventner, who had occupied the cabin C-24, which was next to that of Philip Ridgway. Although unable to see how Poirot had deduced Mr. Ventner's existence and personal appearance, I was keenly excited. Tell me, I cried, was this gentleman one of the first to land when you got to New York? The steward shook his head. No, indeed, sir. He was one of the last off the boat. I retired, crestfallen, and observed Poirot grinning at me. He thanked the steward, a note changed hands, and we took our departure. It's all very well, I remarked heatedly, but that last answer must have dampened your precious theory. Grin as you please. As usual, you see nothing, Hastings. <laughs> That last answer is, on the contrary, the coping stone of my theory. I flung up my hands in despair. I give up. <laughs> I give up. I don't understand. <laughs> in the modern adaptation of film adaptation of this, that last scene ends with, as usual, you see nothing, Hastings. That last answer is, on the contrary, the coping stone of my theory. Fuck this shit! Hastings, <laughs> fuck it! I don't understand! You pompous little bitch! <laughs> he is in, in rare form this time. He is in very, very pompous form. Yeah, like, he's just like... I mean, this is even snarkier than when he, like, ha solved the case from the... Like, from the bed. Or when he did the bet that he said he, yeah. he could, like, I mean, he's just like, yeah, I got it. He's like, I'll go interview some more people, you know, just for fun. <laughs> <clears throat> Once more, we were in a train, speeding towards London this time. Poirot wrote busily for a few minutes, then sealed up the result in an envelope. This is for the good Inspector McNeil. We will leave it at Scotland Yard in passing, and then to the rendezvous restaurant where I have asked Miss Esme Farquhar to do us the honor of dining with us. I can't get over that name. Farquhar? Esme Farquhar. Farquhar. <laughs> what about Ridgeway? What about him? asked Poirot with a twinkle. Mm -hmm. Why, you surely don't think... You can't 
the habit of incoherence is growing upon you, Hastings. As a matter of fact, I did think if Ridgeway had been the thief, which was perfectly possible, the case would have been charming. A piece of neat methodical work. But not so charming for Miss Farquhar. Possibly you are right. Therefore, all is for the best. Now, Hastings, let us review the case. The sealed package is removed from the trunk and vanishes as Miss Farquhar puts it into thin air. We will dismiss the thin air theory, which is not practicable at the present stage of science. <laughs> I love that he doesn't say that could never happen. He's just like, at this point, physics does not allow for uh, um, uh, tra uh, transportation through thin in, air. In this physical realm, that can't happen. We will dismiss the thin air theory, which is not practicable at the present stage of science, and consider what is likely to have become of it. Everyone asserts the incredibility of its being smuggled ashore. Yes, but we know you may know, Hastings. I do not. I take the view that since it seemed incredible, it was incredible. Two possibilities remain. It was hidden on board, also rather difficult, or it was thrown overboard. With a cork on it, do you mean? Without a cork. I stared. But if the bonds were thrown overboard, they could not have been sold in New York. I admire your logical mind, Hastings. The bonds were sold in New York, therefore they were not thrown overboard. You see where that leads us? Where we were when we started? <laughs> Jamais de la vie. If the package was thrown overboard and the bonds were sold in New York, the package could not have contained the bonds. Is there any evidence that the package did contain the bonds? Uh, uh, Mr. Ridgway never opened it from the time it was placed in his hands in London. Yes, but then... Poirot waved an impatient hand. Permit me to continue. Bronchitis, my butt. <laughs> Bronchitis of the butt would probably be really <laughs> oh uncomfortable. Oh my god! Oh, you'd have these, like... I've had bronchitis, like, not of my butt, thank god. Uh, but... Like, you, you cough so deeply. So if you had bronchitis of your butt, you'd just be, like, like very forcefully farting all the time. Yeah. Like, 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 ouch. Like, like, <laughs> like big, bassy, open tuba notes. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Gross. And when you have bronchitis, you start coughing up, like, green stuff and everything, too. Well, so that's not even that, that big a stretch. I guess that's not that weird. Although green is... Not healthy. Not a great color. <laughs> Poirot waved an impatient hand. Permit me to continue. The last moment that the bonds were seen as bonds is in the office of the London and Scottish Bank on the morning of the 23rd. They reappear in New York half an hour after the Olympia gets in. And according to one man whom nobody listens to actually before she gets in. 
Supposing then that they have never been on the Olympia at all, is there any other way they could get to New York? Yes. The Gigantic leaves from Southampton on the same day as the Olympia starts from Liverpool, and the former holds the record for the Atlantic. Mailed by the Gigantic, the bonds would be in New York the day before Olympia arrived. Wait, is a ship called the Gigantic? Oui, there is a ship. <laughs> she is called the Gigantic. This is this is the baby cousin of, of the, the Titanic. Titanic. I would assume. Wait. Uh, Titanic, gigantic. Uh, I want to like now name a like family of those ships. Titanic. Titanic, gigantic, gigantic really big, kind of big, not so big. Tiny. The boat. Wee wee. <laughs> the wee wee. <laughs> I call it the wee wee. But it is spelled O U I O U I. Yes, yes. But it's a it's a pun because it's the tiniest one. So wee wee. <laughs> Mailed by the gigantic, the bonds would be in New York the day before the Olympia arrived. All is clear. The case begins to explain itself. The sealed package is only a dummy. It would have been an easy matter for any of the three men present to prepare a duplicate package which would be substituted for the genuine one. Très bien. The bonds are mailed to a confederate in New York with instructions to sell as soon as the Olympia is in. But someone must travel on the Olympia to engineer the supposed moment of the robbery. Why? Because if Ridgeway merely opens the packet and finds it a dummy, suspicion flies at once to London. No. The man on board in the cabin next door does his work, pretends to force the lock in an obvious manner so as to draw immediate attention to the theft, really unlocks the trunk with a duplicate key, throws the package overboard, and waits until the last to leave the boat. Naturally, he wears glasses to conceal his eyes, and is an invalid since he does not want to run the risk of meeting Ridgeway. He steps ashore in New York and returns by the first boat available. But who? Which was he? Yeah. The man who had a duplicate key, the man who ordered the lock, the man who has not been severely ill with bronchitis at his home in the country, enfin, the stodgy old man, Mr. Shaw. There are criminals in our places sometimes, my friend. Ah, here we are. Mademoiselle, I have succeeded. You permit? <laughs> and beaming. Poirot kissed the astonished girl lightly on either cheek. The end. Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> I like that one. It was a fun one. Bronchitis, my butt. I knew, I was like, that man ain't got no bronchitis. Yep, I think we found our, our episode title. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> the second he said he had bronchitis, I'm like, nah! <laughs> like, sure you did. At least okay. go with pneumonia. Okay, like, honey. At least go bronchitis that turn into pneumonia. Like, come on. You, can't, you don't get to stay home that long for bronchitis. I'm sorry you don't. <laughs> like, 
I had many bouts of it in grad school and <laughs> like in, in Indiana and like yeah it's uh yeah no 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 once it turned into pneumonia now that's when it got shitty so <laughs> do you think pneumonia of the butt would also be shitty <laughs> well bronchitis would be very airy we have discovered uh pneumonia i don't know what that would do to the butt pneumonia of the butt it just is just more intense it's just some more intense bronchitis really i mean it 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 is a little more severe a little bit more paralyzing so yeah, yeah i think it, it's like going from a cold to the flu it's like it's that that step hmm yeah, pneumonia whatever it, of the butt. Whatever it is, it doesn't sound good. It doesn't sound pleasant. I mean, no. bronchitis of the butt sounds pretty painful as well. Sounds, sounds very painful, but it, it at least has that nice alliteration the, to make you feel better. Bronchitis of the butt. <laughs> you get that ba-ba. 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 <laughs> I imagine there's probably... Um, I'm probably going to cut what I'm about to say because it's horrifying. I imagine there's a fair amount of leakage anal leakage like remember those chips the Alestra chips (laughs) they were like those fat free chips that I think they actually still exist I think they rebranded because it got such a bad rap um but it literally said on the back of the package may cause anal leakage I'm sorry I, I I I've been through some eating issues in my life Nothing could make me want to eat something that causes anal leakage. No snack food no. in the history of snack food is worth that side effect. Like, I love chips and like, yeah, but come the fuck. Like, who, who was like, this is a great idea. Like, how, how many people ate those and did experience that? That's what I want to know. Well, it's I'm like, going to go with at least one, and that's too many. At le- Oh, I, yeah, I believe that, yeah, that caused some anal leakage. <laughs> that is such bad, bad wording to put on any kind of food. <laughs> is there anything that is of optional use or ingestion that to you would be worth that potential side effect? Um, I don't know. I mean, if it if it was like, if it was literally like a diet pill that would immediately cause me to lose twenty pounds, I'd deal with a couple days of anal leakage. But um, that's just called an eating disorder. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't think I could do that. I don't. No, I'm trying to think. I okay. love French fries, but if they caused anal leakage every time, I wouldn't love them as no, much. No, I will say uh, that that would be to me that would be a fair trade off for any medicine that actually cleared up poison ivy. Oh, okay. If if the coronavirus vaccine causes anal leakage, Worth it. I will do it. Like if it's like two days, you just have to stay home, and it's like you're about to get a colonoscopy, like like, and it just like drains your soul. I'm gonna treat it like a cleanse. And you move on with your life. So yeah, like if it was a vaccine against a deadly virus or disease, yeah. then I would I would deal with the anal leakage. All right. So I want to say uh, congratulations, <laughs> listener, because <laughs> you are I have no doubt the only person who has made it this far. <laughs> the fact that you you didn't turn this off 
when anal leakage became the topic of conversation <laughs> makes me wonder a little bit about your sanity, but congratulations. You love us. You are the only listener you, who made it this far. You're our biggest so fan. to you, thank you. Thank you for sticking with us. Um, if you thought this was funny, you're our people. Awesome. Tell your friends. You should really tell your friends that that you've got this show <laughs> where we say some really stupid shit. <laughs> and I hope that next week we can give you an even more fulfilling episode <laughs> filled with other orifice leaking. <laughs> Orifice stories. Orifice stories. <laughs> do you think we could do an adaptation of Orpheus that is Orifice? I'm sure you could. I don't know where that would go. Neither do I yet. Yeah. But he's a musician. He is. Maybe he gets bronchitis of the butt and writes a symphony. <laughs> the Orpheus the Orpheus Orifice. <laughs> the Orifice of... The Orifice of... Oh, I can't even say it. The Orpheus Orifice Magnum Opus. Okay, go for it. <laughs> All right. All right, y'all. Well, um, that happened. Hi, everybody. Um, this is what happens when we're in quarantine and we can't leave our house. We yep. start talking about uh, Alestra. <laughs> the Orpheus or Orifice of Orlestra. <laughs> yeah. We're done. Um, so if you like our episodes, if you like us, uh, you can find out more about us at www.campfireclassicspodcast.com. Um, really, what we need right now is uh, for you to pass us along to a friend. If you've enjoyed us, um, pass us along, share, subscribe, uh, leave reviews on uh, wherever you're listening to us. Uh, we love a good five-star review and then give some feedback. It's uh, It's... It's how we grow our podcast and yeah. how we come up with with even more disgusting things. <laughs> also, yes, please share with friends. Yes, please subscribe if you haven't already subscribed. It's just good to know how many people are listening on the regular. But also, uh, shoot us an email and just let us know that you're listening and let us know what you maybe want to hear more of or what you maybe want to hear less yeah. of. Yeah, so we, we, we love, we really love interacting with our uh, listeners, and uh, it seems like we have a, a set group of people that are really listening a lot, so we'd love to hear from you. Um, so you can email us at 5050artsproduction at gmail.com, or you can send us private messages on Facebook, on Twitter, or on uh, Instagram. We have, just search for Campfire Classics Podcast. and Or on our website. Or on our website, you can send messages. So again, www.campfireclassicspodcast.com. Yeah. So yeah, you can find us. We're all over the Googles now. Um, and we, we'd love to hear from you. Whatever you want to share. If you have an author you'd like us to read. Because we only have one more episode of, of Miss Christie and Poirot for now. Um, also, consider uh, checking out Ken's Movember page. And uh, checking the, uh, the status of his mustache. Yes, that would be much appreciated. Love a visit. Uh, if you want to help us raise money, you, you drop a little money on the thing they've got a donate button it's 
Or you can just look at his it's face. It's what it is. Or you can just fun. look at my face and that's fine. And too. then listen to the podcast while you look at his funny mustache. So, yeah, I think that's it. Um, that, was a, that was a fun one. We learned about Agatha Christie's disappearance and uh, um, bronchitis of the butt. Uh, <laughs> productive. Also, also productive. read a mystery. We, well, yes. I mean, that's what we usually do. Um, we, we read a very good, classic, well-written novel and then spoke of anal leakage. So uh, that, that seems about on par with where these, these go. That's upsettingly on brand. <laughs> I mean, we've had a demon dinosaur. And a foul-mouthed demon dinosaur. A very foul-mouthed demon dinosaur. Alan is Jeez. still sitting in the apartment, by the way. Yeah, he's not allowed to come into our recording sessions yeah, anymore, though. Yeah, because we don't like bleeping that much, yes. you know. Too much work. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the glasses have come off. We done? I think we're done. Great. Let's do it. Thank you we'll very much you for week. listening. This has been Campfire Classics, where we try to read those books that look really good on your shelf. <laughs>